0: Take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Corinthians. We're wrapping up the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. This is the ninth message in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I did a little bit of math and figured that if I keep going at this pace, we'll get through 1 Corinthians in about two and a half years. I I promise. That's not my intention. I think we're going to start to get faster and faster as we go through. But we are going to walk through it every single verse of the book of 1 Corinthians. And while you're turning there... I just want to begin the message today with a little bit of a personal testimony. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this passage this week and what it means for me and what it means to me. And I thought about uh, years, years ago, two decades ago now, when Caitlin was just a baby, my oldest daughter, Caitlin, Denise and I uh, decided that we wanted to go and visit Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky which is where I originally felt like I wanted to go to seminary. And it was about that time where I felt like God was calling me to ministry to my great surprise. And, and so we drove out to Kentucky we drove out to Louisville. Uh, Denise got a speeding ticket on the way home, by the way. She's not in here. I don't, th- I don't know if she ever paid it either, so she's probably wanted in the state of Kentucky. But uh, she'll hear about it and she hears about everything. Except for the days I, 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 I say how much I love her And how much of a blessing of God she is to me. Nobody tells her that stuff. But if I say she got a speeding ticket. But anyway, we went out to Kentucky and we went and visited the seminary. And I just remember that experience. And I was excited to go out there. I was excited about the prospect of going to seminary. And I remember getting there and getting on the campus. And I was very young at the time. And I remember feeling completely intimidated by being there. I walked around with the students that are assigned to give you a tour of the place. We went into the office. We met with the dean of the college. We did all the things you do on those types of visits. And I went home and I thought to myself, there's no way I belong in a place like that. And so for about three and a half years, I stayed home and just kept plugging along, doing the things that I thought that I should do. But all the while, I just felt like God was continuing to call me into ministry. So eventually... The short story is that eventually I came to Denise. I said, hey, I think it's time for a great adventure. Let's quit our jobs. Let's pack all of our stuff up. Let's load a U-Haul and drive to North Carolina. We'll go to Southeastern Seminary. And because she loves me, because she's a wonderful wife, she said, let's do it. And we literally quit our jobs, packed a... Uh, U Haul, didn't have jobs, never saw the place we were going to live before we got there, and just drove to North Carolina and started a new life at Southeastern Seminary. Now, when we got there, that feeling of inadequacy only got worse for me. I remember getting there, and all of a sudden, I had the time to go and, and experience things at the seminary. And I went, and I was all of a sudden in the midst of people that I'd read about in books people that I'd heard about and never seen in person. I was the very first time that I went to a chapel service, and they call it chapel, but the chapel seats about 1,500 people. And, and in the chapel, I went there to the chapel, and Stephen Rummage, uh, Dr. Stephen Rummage, was preaching on the atonement. And I'd never heard preaching like that before. I'd never heard anyone preach with such passion and, and open the Bible like that. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, it's amazing. I don't think that I'll ever be able to preach like that man preached. And then... I started to go, and and the next person that I encountered was Al Mohler. And some of you may or may not know these names, but these names are a big deal to me. And I was there with Al Mohler. And then the next person that I sat in a room with, a small room like this about where Nick's sitting, sat in front of a man named John MacArthur. And, and there he was, and I remember thinking, I don't want to say anything, I don't even want to make eye contact with this guy, because I feel like I might turn into a pillar of salt. And I mean, I was just intimidated by these people, and Paige Patterson, the architect of the Southern Baptist Convention's conservative resurgence, a lot of people say that he's the modern day Martin Luther, and he was the president of our seminary, and I remember meeting him, and I just remember thinking to myself, what in God's name am I doing in a place like this, I was just a, like an average guy. You know, I barely graduated high school. I mean, I mean that. I mean, I just barely squeaked through. Uh, I was um, working in construction, doing all kinds of odd jobs, just sort of a guy that went to work and got dirty every day, made an honest living. I didn't have any real education other than what I eked out down the street here at Glenel. What in the world was I doing amongst these people? And then it got even worse when we started to get to know our neighbors at seminary. Because they all had their act together. You know, they were all selling their stuff and going to the foreign mission field and and they were all raising their families in what appeared to be much more orderly fashion than I was. I mean, just everything seemed to be together. And we honestly were, were, were so uncomfortable by that situation that we actually moved away from the seminary and lived about 20 minutes away from the seminary so that we could just live by ourselves. We didn't feel like we fit in to anything while we were there. And it was like that the whole time that I was there. And even when I started pastoring, I still had those Feelings of, of insecurity and, and, and am I enough? And could God really use a guy like me? And thank God over the years, I've come to understand that, yes, God can use anybody. And if God could take a, a nobody like me and use him, God can certainly use you. And we've seen that, that over the years, Denise and I have seen that God has used us as we've made ourselves available to him. And this morning, I want you to see that in our passage of Scripture in verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Listen to how Paul talks to these people. And remember, he's been spending the entire first chapter really introducing them to their calling, who they are in Christ, who they are as the church, talking about the gospel and how it applies to them. And he gets to the end of the chapter, and his closing words in this chapter are this, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And we sang this a few moments ago, so that as, as, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My goal today is really simple. And my goal today in this message, in the next 25 or 30 minutes or however long it will take, my goal today is just to encourage every person in this room. I want you to know that from the, from the outset, that, that my goal, the thing that I've been praying about as I've been preparing this message, the thing I've been thinking about is I want to encourage every person in this room, and I want you to know that every one of you can be used by God. Every one of you can be used. I, I think a lot of Christians get the idea that God only uses a certain class of people. I really believe that's true. Whether, whether we admit it or not, I, I think that we have that idea in our head that, that God might use some of us, but God really prefers to use a certain class of people. Like we think of, of athletes and, and people like Tim Tebow, you know, and there's a, there's a guy who's publicly lived out his faith for good or, or bad, for better or for worse, but there's a guy who's got all the talent in the world, all the physical ability in the world, he speaks well, he's good looking, you know, that's the kind of guy that God would want to use. Or well, we think of people like Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, you know, even though he was God, his starts in a pretty humble way, he, he was one of those guys that when you heard his voice, you felt like you were sitting under the authoritative word of God. He was just preaching in a certain way, carrying himself in a certain way. Presidents sought him out. World leaders sought him out. You know, he's a type of guy that we think that's the kind of guy that God would use. Or any number of people who are famous for various reasons and, People come to Christ, and and we have a way in the Christian community of taking people who are famous and well-known who come to Christ and vaulting them to the top so that people like us who aren't so famous and maybe who are a little more normal look to them, and we begin to think to ourselves, of course God would use them because God uses people like that, but God would never use a person like me. And I want you to know that that's absolutely wrong. In fact, it's actually the opposite of what Paul's saying in these verses. You notice in these verses that that Paul really, he talks about the people that God chose, the people that God chooses to use, and and he talks about the way that God chooses them. And And I'm glad that God chooses the people that He uses based on what He wants and not based on some worldly standard. And I want you to notice as we sort of just walk our way down through these Verses that God chooses two sort of groups of people. There's a minority and then there's a majority. And I want you to look first of all at the minority in verse 26. Look at it again, verse 26. This is the minority. For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. So he says that the minority of the people that God chooses are are three types of people. First of all, not many wise according to worldly standards. This is just the intellectuals of the world. Now, God does use some people who are intellectuals. Thank God some of the people that I've learned the most from and who have who I've been taught by over the years had a supreme intellect. And there are people that God uses who have a a great and a strong intellect. But he says it's not many of them who are wise, not many of the intellectuals, not many, the second group, are powerful. And these are the influential people. How many of you picked up Time magazine this week? Good, don't waste your time. I, I only know because I was told by certain people under the age of 25 living in my home that that Time recently released its list of the 100 most influential people. And so I took the time to do my due diligence. I don't want to criticize something unless I do my due diligence. So I, I read all the way through the list of the 100 most influential people according to Time magazine. And I've got to tell you that there couldn't be a more shining example of the fact that God doesn't call many influential people than the list that Time produced. I'm serious. I mean, these people, you look through it. Now, there were a few people on there that I would say that these are Christians, but not many. Not, God doesn't call many influential people, and he says not many of noble birth. And so these are people who are, who are born into a situation of high resources or social status. We don't talk about noble blood in America. We don't, we don't have royal structures and things like that. But but what he's really talking about is just people who are born with, with unusual resources or unusually high... Social status. I heard a story about a woman who lived in England named Lady Huntington. And she had all sorts of wealth and status and royal blood coursing through her veins. But she was also a Christian. And it said that Lady Huntington would often tell people that she had been saved by the letter M. Because you notice that Paul says it's not many. He doesn't say not any. He says not many. And thank God for all of us that He says that. Now I want to say something to our church. I I don't know if you realize it or not. I hope that you realize it. I hope you understand how unbelievably blessed of God you are. I I mean, the Bible says in the book of James chapter 1 that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from our Father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shadow of change. Every good thing you have in your life comes from God. So, so everything that you've accomplished in your life, the, the, the money that you've saved, the wealth that you've earned, the education that you have, it has all come from God. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but we are the very people, according to the world, that Paul's addressing in these verses. Do you realize that? That we Do you know that, that we live amongst and you are some of the most educated people in the world? That you are and we are some of the most intellectual people in the world? Right here where we, where we sit. In fact, if there's an idol in Howard County, isn't it? Education. We are the most educated, intellectual people in the world. We, we live amongst, and some of the people in this world, or in this church even, in one way or another, have very, a great deal of power. And we live amongst powerful and influential people. We live in a place of great wealth and advantage. Anytime somebody comes to visit me from another place, from not here, And I take them for a drive and and we drive down one of the roads and particularly if we start heading down Ten Oaks Road and going down near Clarksville, somebody will inevitably see subdivisions of mansions and wonder, what in the world do people around here do that they live in houses like this? And I just want you to stop and think about the truth that, that some of us are the very people that Paul says not many are called. Not many like that are called. And in that sense, that ought to drive us to our knees in reverence and thanksgiving to God. To say that by His grace, He has called some who are intellectual. He's called some who are influential. He's called some who have noble blood. He's called some, not many, but some. They're the minority. But look at the majority. Thank God for the majority, by the way i tried not to preach at you. I've tried to include myself in that first group with you, but I really feel like I live in the majority. I mean that honestly. I really feel like I'm down here in this group. Look at it in verse 27. This is the majority of the people that God chooses. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses the foolish things of this world. If my wife was in here, God lovers, she would have shouted amen and hallelujah to that verse. Because I really do identify with that, that God chooses the things that are foolish, just the simple things of this world, to shame, the things that are wise. You know, one of the most influential people in my life was a man that nobody ever really knew except people who ran across him in the little town where he lived in central West Virginia. His name was Doyle Ryder. And he was just an old mountain preacher. When I was pastoring my first uh, church in West Virginia, I got to know Doyle, and he was serving on a board with me in the town that we were living in. And and he, at the time, was was an older man. I felt like he was a very wise man. And so I used to go, and I asked him, could I just come by your house sometime and visit with you and sit with you? And can you just tell me I'm just a 20-something-year-old preacher? I don't know anything. I don't know what I'm doing. Can you teach me? And I'd go and I'd sit down at his kitchen table in a little tiny house. You had to drive over the mountain and through the woods to get there. I'm telling you. And then you passed down, coming out of of junior West Virginia, and you came down and crossed through an old... strip mine where they were mining coal and you could see the black coal everywhere and Doyle had grown up in the coal mines right there in those hills working in all those coal mines and eventually felt like God was calling him to preach and the only church he knew of was the church in that little holler where he lived and so he went there in that church and he asked if he could serve there and preach and they told him no so he said well can I just clean the church And so he stayed there and he started cleaning the church and he didn't get any pay for it. He just hung around the church and eventually he started praying with people at the church. Eventually he started teaching at the church. Eventually he felt like maybe he could preach at the church and so they sent him to do some schooling and he was so illiterate he couldn't even pass a simple English test. He couldn't read or write enough to get through. it. But he spent his whole life in that church ministering to the people in that church, learning more and more, growing More and more devoting his life to people. And by the world's standards, he was just a backwoods hillbilly, just a fool who butchered the English language, couldn't write very well. Didn't even read very well. By the world's standard, he was just a fool. But God used Doyle Ryder to reach countless people in that region of West Virginia and even has influenced my life to this day. I still think of him. God uses foolish people. God uses foolish things. In fact, he prefers it. Thank God. The second is the weak things of the world. God chose what is weak in the world. To shame the strong. Not a lot of us think that we can't be used by God because we don't have the resources to be used by God. We're not strong enough. We're not gifted enough. We're not talented enough. A few years back, Denise and I went to the state convention, the Baptist state convention, in in um, Ocean City. And I don't like going to those kind of meetings. I, I'm going to uh, the Southern Baptist Convention in Birmingham in a few weeks and. And uh, I go because I feel like I I need to go sometimes. There are things happening I want to be aware of and present for. But I don't like to go to those meetings because I don't like to get around people, preachers who are important. You know what I mean? No, 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 please don't say that. That's exactly what I don't want. I heard about a guy one time, a pastor who came home one time and asked his wife, said, honey do you know how many great preachers there are left in the Southern Baptist Convention? And she looked at him and said, yeah, there's one less than you think there is. <laughs> like, you get around you get around some preachers sometimes, and they just feel important. And I, I, I get at those meetings sometimes, and I get a little nervous and feeling that. And we were at this convention in, in Ocean City years ago, and, and we were in the room, and there was probably maybe close to 1,000 people in the room. And, and we had heard people speak, and we had heard people preach, and We'd heard all the committee leaders and the president of the convention and the vice president of the convention and all these important people come up and and do their thing. And then finally, towards the end of the evening, they had this guy come up, this young man. I think he was 14 years old at the time. And he walked up on the stage, and you could clearly see that he was disabled and he had some things going on. His mom began to tell the story about how he was born, I think at 26 weeks He weighed just, I think if I'm getting this right, just about a pound and a half when he was born. Cocaine coursing through his veins, abandoned by his parents. She had heard about him because the father was her brother who she was estranged from, but she eventually felt compelled to to look for this little boy and found him in foster care. And when she found him, she found out that he was there, but he was severely handicapped. He was blind. He wasn't making any uh, attempt to speak. He clearly had other issues, going on multiple issues. There were just so many things wrong with him physically and mentally and developmentally. All all these things wrong with him. But as he grew up, they discovered that he had an unusual musical gift. And he began, before he ever spoke a word, he began to, to sing tunes and play tunes on a little keyboard that they gave him. And that night he stood up and, and with his mom's help he told his story and then he sang for us. He sang for us. And I remember Denise and I that night, it might have been the pollen, I don't know, but uh, Denise and I that night in the back of the room with tears streaming down our face, moved so much by this little 14-year-old boy who in every way was a picture of physical weakness, was a picture of developmental disabilities in every single way. But God used him in a room where people are strong, where people are important to bring the whole place to tears and understand that God can use the weak things of this world to shame the strong. You don't have to be a powerful, influential person to be used by God. God can use the foolish things. God can use the weak things. And in verse 28, Paul sums it up when he says that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That sounds like a clunky sentence in English, but just follow me here for a minute. The word despised, it says... God uses those things that are despised, comes from a root word that just means to be considered as nothing. So God uses what is low and despised, the things that are considered nothing. And he says, and even the things that are not. And this is a statement that really in the Greek that it was written in and in the cultural setting that it was in would have been one of the highest insults or lowest insults. I'm not sure how that works. But if you wanted to really insult somebody in that cultural setting, you would just say that they lacked being, that they, they didn't have a real being. The greatest thing in Greek culture was the sense of being. And he says, so God has used the things that, that are, uh, are low and despised in this world, considered nothing, and things that are not, things that have uh, no being. And so really what he's saying is that God has used the things of this world that the world says are nothing and Nobody. God has used the things of this world that are foolish, the things that are weak, and the things and the people of this world that the world says are good for nothing. Those are the kind of people that God uses. Good news, isn't it? And then in verse 29, look at how that begins. So that, so that. Now that just helps us to understand that what he's getting ready to do is he's going to tell us why God uses these kinds of people. He uses the foolish, He uses the weak, He uses the nobodies so that no human being might be able to boast in the presence of the Lord. God gets all the glory. I mean, we have examples of this in the Bible, don't we? You remember David and Goliath? You remember when Goliath, that champion of the Philistines came out against the army of God and threatened them and challenged them, and nobody would step up. But there was a little shepherd boy. He couldn't even wear the armor of the king. Weighed him down too much. He said, I'll fight the giant. And he went out there, and, and you know the story. I don't have to tell you the whole story. But, but he went out there, and he killed the giant. And none of us, I don't think any of us, have ever assumed, not for a minute. I don't think anybody who's ever heard the story of David and Goliath has ever assumed for a minute that the reason David slew Goliath was because he was such an expert with his slingshot. I mean, I don't think there's a risk of anybody coming away from that story and thinking, man, that David, what a shot. What a guy. I think that everybody who's honest about that walks away from that story and says, the only explanation for why that little shepherd boy could kill the giant was because God did it through him. And so God gets the glory. I think about Peter. uh, You know, the Apostle Peter. Apostle Peter was just a fisherman. You know, when Jesus chose his disciples, he chose simple people. He didn't go to the Uh, to the, the philosophy schools he didn't go to the synagogue he went to the side of the sea and he chose fishermen you think of a simple guy like peter probably not a great deal of education certainly not any experience in what he was called to do even when jesus was arrested and tried he denied him he ran off but it wasn't too long after that when Peter in the book of Acts is the one who stood on the day of Pentecost and preached the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in the history of the world, and thousands of people repented and came to Christ. Now, why would God use a simple fisherman like Peter? I believe it was because God wants the glory, and He gets the glory. God calls Simple people to do big things. I remember, I'll just tell you this and I'll begin to close. and I remember I was thinking through all this this week and I started with the word of testimony and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of wrap things up that way. Around that time period where I told you when Caitlin was a baby, I was really just struggling a great deal with what I felt like God was calling me to do with my life and And I grew up in the home of a pastor. Some of you don't know me. You don't know that about me. I did grow up in a pastor's home, but I didn't want anything to do with pastoring. I had lived on the inside of that whole situation and decided that if there was one thing in my life that I never wanted to do, it was be a pastor. People would ask me when I was young, are you going to follow in your dad's footsteps? And I'd say, have you lost your mind? What kind of person would ever want to do what my dad does? By the way, one of the surefire ways to do something is to tell God you're never going to do it. And so I I had just decided it wasn't for me, but I felt like God was calling me in that direction. I can't explain that to you. I won't try to explain that to you, but I was really struggling with it, and I didn't know what that meant for me. I was pretty comfortable in my life, and Denise and I were just getting started, but we were happy. We were comfortable where we were at, and I didn't know what that meant, but uh, I was driving home one day from work, and... I don't even remember who it was. I think it was Tony Evans, I think. But some preacher on the radio was preaching about surrendering to God's call in your life. And he said something basically like this. He said something like, you don't have to be afraid to be available to God. Like he's not going to put you in a place or take you somewhere or do something with you that he's not going to prepare you for. So don't don't be afraid. And I remember that day thinking to myself, all right, well, I guess I don't have much of a choice. I really feel like God's calling me to ministry. I don't know how to get there or what I'm going to do, but I want to be obedient. And so I sat down on the front porch of the little house that we rented over on 144 in West Friendship, just driving up the hill, two houses up, I think, from the School there. And I got home, and before I ever went in the house, I sat down on the front porch and I said, God, if you'll use me, I'm available. Whatever you want, wherever you'll take me, I'm available. And from that point on, our life has been an endless adventure. As God has taken us places and done things in us and through us and with us that we never ever imagined would happen. Just make yourself available. You don't have to be afraid to be available. And some of you are thinking, well, that's fine for you because you knew you wanted to be a pastor. I don't want to be a pastor. And I don't want to slay giants. And I don't want to preach in Jerusalem. And I don't want to do any of those things. So this isn't really for me. Which I would say, yes, it is for you. Just be available. You you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to preach sermons, you don't have to slay giants, you don't have to go on the mission field. God will use you and prepare you the way that He wants to. And it may be that if you'll be available to God, He'll just use you to invite your neighbor to church. Maybe that's it. Maybe, and, and that's not a little thing. Maybe he'll use you to pray for your coworker, or pray with your coworker whose life is falling apart. And maybe you'll be like that guy who met Joseph in a field when he was out looking for his brothers who changed the course of history with one little action, just one little action. Maybe you'll be compelled to, to give a little money to, to provide clean water to a village in Ghana, and God will use you that way. Or maybe you'll adopt a child that you never thought that you would adopt or, or something. But God will use you. He's prepared. He will prepare you and He'll use you in His good pleasure for the things that He wants to accomplish. And in the end, He'll get all the glory from it. And verse 29, he's, He said that He uses the low, the low things, the foolish things, the, um, the things of this world that are unexpected... So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, so that he alone gets the glory. And look in verse 30, he says, And because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, every good thing that you have is because of what Christ has done for you. And no matter what God is calling you to do, no matter what God has done in you, what God has done through you, what God will do in you, what God will do through you, no matter what God will use you for, he says it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. It's because of him that that Jesus is the wisdom of God. It's because of him that you have righteousness. It's because of him that you have sanctification. It's because of him that you have your redemption. And then he says in verse 31, so that, again, so that. God does it all in you and through you so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are God's nobodies. And He plans it that way. To use the weak things, to use the foolish things, to use the nobodies and the nothings of this world, so that when God does something, there's no mistaking is God who did that not us